0: EU Confidential gets started right after this.
1: Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Evolving into a broad energy company, harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea is one of our solutions for the European energy transition.
2: We are at a crossroad in our relation with Russia, and the choices that we will make will determine the international power dynamics on this century.
0: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard the EU's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, defending his recent trip to Moscow, described in some quarters as a humiliation. And it's got him into a whole lot of trouble. We'll have plenty to say about that in just a moment with our podcast panel, who will also dig a little deeper into French politics with a special guest. And later in this episode, you'll also hear from Lithuania's foreign minister, Gabrielis Landsbergis, in conversation with our own Remontas about big issues facing his Baltic country, including vaccines, the EU's relationship with China and, yes, Russia again. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. Uh, Reem is here as usual. Hi, Reem. Hello, everyone. Uh, Matt is in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Bonsoir. And because our next guest is the author of the brand new Politico Playbook Paris, on va faire uh, tout le podcast en français. Uh, tu es au courant, Matt? Ça, ça te va? Ça te convient? Y a Mais pas Bien de sûr. Okay. On yes, yeah. continue comme ça. No, in fact, we won't do that because I don't think people want to listen to a Scottish guy talking French for half an hour, even despite the old alliance, one for the history buffs.
2: Despite my near-fluent French. Yeah, exactly. right. There you go. I gave you
0: an out while you were ahead. Yeah. Thank you. And now let's bring in uh, the author of Playbook Paris. It's welcome, Pauline Saint-Remy. Hi, Andrew. Welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you, and we'll put a link to Playbook Paris in our show notes this week. So we thought we would just kick off by talking a bit about French politics, your speciality, and maybe help us uh, understand how the presidential race is, uh, you know, looking right now. We know that it's more than a year away, but already there seems to be lots of talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at the potential, you know, main challengers to Emmanuel Macron, Marine Le Pen is a name that always comes up. How is she looking right now as a challenger to Macron?
3: Of course, Marine Le Pen is considered as the opponent to uh, Emmanuel Macron as she already was in 2017 and during the European campaign. And uh, polls do show that she's very strong. And actually, that's going to be a real problem for for them, because um, even though uh, Macron and Le Pen deny it when you ask them about it, there is a sort of mutual interest in fighting one another. And so in a certain way, they they help each other out by fighting one another and keeping the the, the public debate going on between them and preventing the other candidates, uh, especially the moderate ones, from uh, emerging
0: okay, and then so who are the other potential challengers? I mean, as we know, France has this two round system, which means you have a lot of candidates vying to get into the second round when it 's a runoff. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody who might you know cause an upset so that we don 't end up with a macron le pen second round, particularly maybe on the on the center right with les républicains
3: well it 's a tough question actually because. There are so many of them, and so few at the same time. (laughs) There are talks about uh, Xavier Bertrand for Les Républicains, for the Conservative Party. Okay, tell us a bit about him. He's the president of uh, the région uh, Hauts-de-France, up north, and he used to be uh, one of uh, Sarkozy's ministers. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's also also the Socialist Party. People are really uh, looking at uh, Anne Hidalgo right now, the mayor of Paris, but uh, for now, the polls aren't so good for her. She was she was tested for the first time uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she was she's only given six percent of voting intention. So she mm. doesn't stand a chance for now. And uh, there's also Arnaud Montebourg, which is maybe the individual people are are have been talking about lately but uh, I'm not sure he's so serious about being a candidate. Uh,
0: Remind us, he was a minister, government minister at one point, right?
3: Exactly, under uh, François Hollande. People often consider he's been a visionary uh, on the issue of economic sovereignty, which uh, which has become a bigger issue right now with uh, the crisis, obviously. But... Otherwise, he's not so serious in the way he, he's organising for, for the campaign. He doesn't seem like a, he has a lot of people surrounding him. He doesn't have money. Uh, so there are questions about his seriousness.
0: Okay. Now, Reem, you talk a lot to, to French officials, officials at the Elysee. How much do you think the election is already on their mind? How much is it already driving what Emmanuel Macron is doing, even, even on the European stage?
4: Well, the official line is they are not thinking at all about the election and they're only 100% of the time thinking about managing this coronavirus crisis and making sure that the needs of the French people are guarded and guaranteed. Of course, uh, no one believes that. And of course, uh, the presidential election is already front and center, uh, in their minds and they, you can see it in their messaging, even if they don't actually admit it. Mm.
0: Um, Well, let's switch topics now and talk about um, one of the other big talking points of the week. And this goes back to last Friday when the EU's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, uh, was in Russia. I think you should say his full name, Andrew. Uh, Well, I'm not sure we have that long. Out of respect. Um, But we'll just call him Josep Borrell. You know, we're on good terms. So he was in Moscow, as uh, many people will know, and took part in a press conference with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. And he has not received rave reviews. In fact, he has received a lot of criticism. More than 70 MEPs have called for him to go. He stood by, as Lavrov called the EU, an unreliable partner. He was drawn into criticising the US over Cuba. He welcomed the Russian coronavirus vaccine. And three EU diplomats, diplomats were expelled or their expulsion was announced during his visit. So it kind of looks like he walked into an ambush and didn't do a great job of defending himself. The line from Borel is, there's nothing wrong with going to Moscow. This is diplomacy. You have to talk to people even if we don't like them. Lots of other uh, European ministers go. Why shouldn't I go? Is anyone buying this? Reem, you worked for a little while in, in the diplomatic world is is Borel just being a diplomat and getting criticised for that? no
4: the being a diplomat doesn't mean going uh, and walking into what was clearly an ambush and something that he should have and could have uh, foreseen and should have been uh, prepared for as by the way many diplomats who have dealt with the russians for many many years have pointed out publicly i'm thinking in particular about for example a former french ambassador gérard Araud, who i knew when we were both working in the un security council and he used to, i used to watch watch him spar with you know his russian counterpart and when Lavrov came you know we saw how how they behaved um the russians are known to sort of prepare everything in advance especially on their home turf and the worst part about about the burel meeting wasn't that he went you know he is right to say as diplomats their job is to talk to everyone especially people they don't agree with His problem was that he seemed to have walked into the trap completely unprepared and just sort of played out a Russian kind of dreamo vision of trying to drive a wedge between the EU and the US when he got Burrell to uh, criticize the US on Cuba out of nowhere. And most importantly, as you just said, uh, Andrew, he just stood by as Lavrov basically said that uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, but also French President Emmanuel Macron and others had simply lied and made up the fact that Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition uh, figure, was poisoned with a Russian Novichok chemical weapon. And he just stood by as he said that the EU is, un- is an unreliable partner. And as our Politico colleagues, David Hershenhorn and Jacopo Parigazzi wrote on Wednesday, in a really damning piece, this isn't the first time he has failed to stand up in the face of geopolitical rivals. He failed to stand up for the EU with China. He's failed to stand up for the EU with Turkey. This is becoming a real problem.
2: Mm. Matt, what do you make of it? Well, it seems that every time Borrell gets into a situation like this, it, it doesn't really go well for him or the EU. And I, I think it's you know, unfortunate that it comes in a week that the commission has had a pretty rough time on other fronts, the whole vaccine issue, as we have discussed before, you know, it it really looked like amateur hour. And I I think it does kind of damage the commission's credibility in particular, at at a very important moment, because this wasn't a trip that he had to take, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not he should even go, he decided to go. And, you know, one would have thought if he were Going to go, despite the reservations that many people in Europe had about it, that he he would prepare properly and he wasn't prepared. Clearly, his staff wasn't prepared. And, you know, it it really looked like he just walked into a knife there and didn't even realize what had happened until until he left. So I think, you know, for people who are pushing for more power for the commission when it comes to foreign policy – You know, this wasn't a great advertisement for that initiative.
0: Mm. Pauline, in in French political circles, you know, particularly maybe those who are focused on on domestic politics, does this register at all? Does anyone even know who Joseph Borrell is?
3: I'm really ashamed to say this, but I think nobody knows who he is. I think Rim would would agree with me. Yes, absolutely. She's right. I've barely seen an article in French press about this whole thing, even though it's it's a really good story. I've read like (laughs) one or two articles.
0: Yeah, but I think that's a really good reality check because obviously, you know, we, we look at this from Brussels and, and this kind of consumes us uh, to an extent. But I think that's also a concern, obviously, for the EU. If it wants to be taken seriously on the foreign policy stage, and even when something like this happens, it doesn't actually register very much in, you know, in, in
2: major political capitals. Maybe that's the worst thing of all—just being ignored. Yeah, but I would actually disagree with that, Andrew. I think it does register. It might not register with the general population, but it registers with the elites. Sure. I suspect that everybody dealing with uh, foreign policy in in Paris knows what happened, and and you know, but that's also true of most most issues pertaining to the EU, if we're honest. Yeah, to a greater or lesser extent. But in terms of international relations, I can tell you that they were watching this very closely in Washington. What conclusions do you think they will draw? Well, I think the, the conclusion is, is that the you cannot rely on the EU when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to pushing important initiatives. You have to go to the big capitals. You can't go to Brussels because it is, as I said before, it's just amateur hour.
0: Yeah, it's certainly not going to bolster that case. Okay, well, I think we've probably talked for long enough and I saw that at least one of Pauline's uh, children made an appearance while we were talking and was very well behaved. So um, we'll leave things there for now and let let Pauline in particular jump off. Thanks again, Pauline.
3: Thanks, bye Andrew, bye everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, and Reem, if you can just stick around for a moment to introduce our feature interview. Tell us who you spoke to and uh, give us a flavour of what you talked about.
4: Yes, I interviewed the Lithuanian foreign minister, Gabrielus Landsbergis. Uh, He was appointed foreign minister just in December. He's 39. But he actually comes from a very important political family in Lithuania. He's the grandson of the first post-independence, so post-Soviet Union president. And he was in town because he was participating in the first meeting between the foreign ministers of the Baltic states, that's Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania with the French foreign minister. And so we met at the Lithuanian embassy in Paris, and we discussed a very wide range of uh, geopolitical issues, including the sanctions that were recently imposed by European countries in the EU on Russia when it com- because of uh, the Navalny poisoning. And we also discussed, of course, the informal format that exists between some European countries and China. It's called the 17 plus one format uh, that is kind of controversial with, let's say, France and Germany, who are not very big fans. And so we discussed that. uh, And he had some quite interesting things to say about that as well. And of course, we discussed the transatlantic relationship with the Biden administration coming in.
0: Okay, and we'll hear that interview in just a moment.
1: A message from Equinor. Offshore wind farms harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea are one of our solutions for Europe's energy transition. Our offshore wind farms in Europe already generate enough electricity to power the equivalent of one million homes, and we have developed the world's first floating wind farm, enabling the harvest of the winds in deeper waters. Now we are developing the world's largest offshore wind farm, Dodger Bank in the UK North Sea. It alone can power 4.5 million homes. Offshore wind projects are getting bigger and they are getting more complex. We in Equinor see a sea of opportunities off the coast of Europe to support the energy transition and an industrial renewal.
4: Let's start with a bit about you. Uh, Lithuania just marked 30 years of independence, democracy. You happen to also be the grandson of a supremely important uh, figure in, in that struggle for freedom. And today your foreign minister. Isn't that a lot of pressure?
5: I think now it's it's not that much of a pressure. I think that the biggest questions arose when I when I joined politics uh, seven or eight years ago. But then, you know, I, I will always say that, you know, we are a generation who witnessed the creation of, of independence from the... Uh, shoulders of our parents, you know, I, I used to sit on my, my father's shoulders when he attended the rallies for Lithuanian freedom, I remember, you know, because it was a very good sight. And, well, my grandfather was somewhere, you know, in front uh, giving a speech, so... Were
4: you aware of who your grandfather was? Yeah. How do you process that as a, as a young child?
5: Very naturally. Really, I mean, it's, it's just a matter, you know, it's life. You know, somebody's a writer. Somebody's, you know, a, a bus driver, and you know, well, he's just, you know, leading the revolution. So, <laughs> what's
4: what's your biggest memory of, of, of that time? What is one image that you keep in mind?
5: I was attending uh, one of the rallies with my with my mother, and I think that it, it was when um, the police, uh, well, the Soviet Lithuanian police, was was unleashed on the on the on the people. And uh, so we started running up the old uh, old town, but I was running too slow. I was really little. I was you know six years old. Uh, and I remember my mom lifting me, you know, just handing me over to one of her friends, and he picked me up and then we started running. And I didn't see the police. I didn't understand what's, you know, what was going on. Then later on, kind of I, I explained it myself that actually it was the riot police, this person
4: is that in your mind when you watch what's going on in Belarus right now?
5: Absolutely, yeah. It's um, even though for Belarus it's a second, you know, second wave of revolution. They already gained their independence at the same time that we did. But what we see, you know, it reminds us that you know this this hunger for freedom is, is eternal. Actually, you know, you know people are not really complacent. we're, we're not okay when re- liberty is taken away. Actually, I'm really grateful for the people that they reignite, not only the memory, but the understanding of what freedom really is and why we have to keep fighting for it.
4: But do you think that the EU is rising up to that occasion? Is it doing what it needs to do for the Belarusian people?
5: I think that EU needs to remind us of what it stands for, you know, what it actually stands for. For me, EU is you know it's value-based organization. Uh, what are those values, then? Well, rule of law let's say, human rights, freedom of speech, you know, the, the cornerstones of the of the society that we hold dear.
4: Do you feel like the EU is, is still having a hard time using sticks, using power, using force when it needs to, to make its point, to actually stand up for these values?
5: I think that it's, it's still very political, extremely political. Obviously, it cannot change overnight. And... Uh, but the way we approach sanctions, it's like, you know, the, the, the union is divided, people have different positions and attitudes. I think we need to get to the point where we look at it from the legal standpoint. You know, we have rules and if the rules are broken, then sanctions appear.
4: But the Belarusian democratic leader, the leader of the democratic Belarusian sort of movement, you know, uh, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, says that the West needs to be stronger, that the sanctions imposed are not as strong as they should be. Do you agree with her?
5: Well, you know, I know how European institutions work. You know, it's, it's building the consensus. And up until the point the consensus is built you know, uh, we cannot act. So, yeah, so I think we could be faster. But I think, on the other hand, that we need mechanisms how to be faster. Because now it's only the political debate that actually we, the only instrument that we have.
4: Is it just the question of speed or is it also a question of being assertive, of, of finding the EU voice to be assertive in the face of a foe or an adversary like Russia?
5: Well, I. Th- this is what I'm saying. You know, if we have... Certain set of rules that let who would say you know if you are imprisoning the opposition leader without due process without you know after poisoning him, then there will be with san- a chemical weapon. Yes, with a chemical weapon, then there will be sanctions. That's it. Just you know, we could say it out loud that you know it's uh, we we should pre debate it.
4: So, you know, you are here in Paris. Uh, This is the first time uh, this format has taken place where the three Baltic states meet with uh, sort of their French counterpart. I wonder, how does a small country like Lithuania weigh on the debate?
5: Well, um, I think that there are certain things that we offer I think that we can we can really influence, and we are doing that. I'm sure uh, Europe's debate on the east, one of the possibilities that I see as actually not only health related but also uh, politically and even geopolitically related, this vaccination program to the Eastern Partnership countries, where, um, as as some might say, you know, if we are able to provide vaccines, at least for the doctors of the countries, for Ukraine, Moldova. Uh, Georgia, in Armenia, Azerbaijan and especially Belarus then it would be more than all the bridges and roads that we build as, as European Union in these, in these countries because this is, a, this is a very special time and the relationships that we build now might last for ages and on the other hand the relationship that we don't build and others will build and they might last for ages as well
4: is the coronavirus vaccine the new soft power? Is that what you're saying?
5: Yeah, I said that it's uh, it's a new gold standard. <laughs> yeah, but it's it, I say that it's uh, vaccine uh, geopolitics.
4: How do you see the relationship with NATO, France, strategic autonomy, with the arrival of the Biden administration?
5: Well, that's <laughs> very... Many different uh, things. So first of all, after two thousand fifteen or fourteen when you know when Ukraine was attacked, I think we've seen a lot of NATO support. This is a very strong message that we we receive. you know we're very picking up the signals, everything that we can get, you know uh, because you know, staying on the borders you always feel. Fidgety, uh, you know, about you know what's going on on one side of the border and then in the alliance as well.
4: So for you, the Russian threat is still a, a daily thing. It's it's real. It's concrete.
5: Yeah, absolutely, it's real. And uh, you know, having all those tens of thousands of Russian, Belarusian troops training, uh, you know, a couple of hundred kilometers from the capital, it's uh, it's not a pleasant, uh, pleasant idea. But anyway, you know, we we have first and foremost we have trust in NATO. So this is this is very important. Second thing that I might say is that we might arrive at the area of unpredictability uh, when it comes to the East.
1: What does that mean?
5: The political situation in Belarus is, is not very clear how it's going to evolve. Obviously, a lot of us are hanging on to the situation uh, in, in Moscow, because I think that uh, Mr. Putin is holding uh, Lukashenko's chair. If it's yanked away, you know that's, that's one thing. But what we're seeing now in Russia is that Russia itself might arrive at a similar situation that uh, that we've seen in Minsk. You know, so many people showing up in the middle of winter, you know, just to express their protest for uh, opposition leaders' arrest, is a sign that you know something is is actually changing.
4: You mean the protest that we've seen after the arrest of Navalny?
5: Yes, absolutely. And uh, Mr. Putin is nervous. I think that. Mr. Navalny hit a very, very sensitive nerve. He was hitting it for quite some time, but now I think he finally hit it. People are fed up. They want change.
4: But is it wishful thinking to go from this, signs of perhaps tension or uh, nervousness, to actual change?
5: Well, the thing is that uh, change would be the weakening of his power. He wouldn't be able to manage the protests. You know, I I was saying he can put 4,000 people in jail, but he will struggle with 40,000 people in jail. We might see some crazy things in the future, but all of them are signs of weakening weakening power.
4: But how does that play out within the EU? We see countries like France deciding it is very important to have a dialogue with Russia without really talking to the European partners before.
5: Well, the dialogue is always, you know, I, I see a dialogue. It's a beautiful world. You know, but it means that there are two equal partners, which base their talking condition on a level playing field. And uh, well, I don't see that with Russia, actually, at this at this stage. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and but, you know, what does the EU not understand about the Baltic states?
5: I would mention one thing: we are reconsidering our approach towards China. Eight years ago, uh, we've been offered a position possibility to um, participate in this 17 plus one uh, format uh, Central Eastern European countries and uh, several B- B- Balkan countries and uh, the reason why uh, last government that the, the former government decided to, to participate is the feeling that we're not well represented in the EU when it comes to China I would say it, frankly it, it, it appears as if you know Bigger countries have, you know, first-hand approach and uh, their interests are more taken into account.
4: And are you talking about the France and Germany here?
5: Uh, well, are there other bigger countries. <laughs> so, and that's why I think that, you know, a certain coalition could be formed in order better to kind of uh, defend our interests. And And China was using that as well because, you know, kind of to have this, a bit divided Europe, you know, whenever, you know, kind of, we can, uh, it's, it's easier to negotiate that.
4: You know, critics of the 17 plus one always say that it is 17 plus one, and the one, China, sets the rules of the game.
5: So this is, you know, this is what, uh, what why we started the debate, you know, whether we see this uh, as, as a, a true 17 plus one, or is it just, you know, one and then the other's. So the thought is that maybe if we were to set a clear architecture for the EU 27 relationship with China, I think that the countries like Lithuania would be more eager to coordinate its policy towards, towards China. Um, so
4: you, you need some sort of signal from the other European countries.
5: I think, you know, encouragement would be welcome.
4: But also we saw the European Commission, the German presidency of the EU, and the French president have their own little kind of talk with a Chinese president. It was like,
5: so. This is, without this is, the rest. Yeah, so this is, you know, one, one of the things that kind of uh, might uh, persuade people to stay in 17 plus 1. And if it were to change, or at least you know, the, kind of we would start talking about this, you know, how other countries see this, I would feel that you know we would we would see a more coherent, more united uh, EU-China-China policy.
4: Well, thank you very
5: much. Thank you so much for the questions. Thanks to Reem for bringing us
0: that conversation, and Reem and Bat are back with us now to do recommendations to get you through lockdown. My recommendation to myself is to go to the Barbers on the first day that they reopen, which is Saturday here in Brussels. But also, uh, well, let's start with Reem. What's your what's your tip?
4: Well, I just started reading this long book, but it seems really great. And it's called Putin's People and it's by Catherine Belton. And I think it's just very apropos right now.
2: Okay, Matt, you got one? Well, I'm not sure my choice is apropos of, of anything, but it is interesting. And I've I've noticed recently that on uh, this channel, Arte, they have a, a fascinating documentary on there about the film Das Boot, about a submarine crew in World War II. And they kind of go back and, and talk to the people who made the movie and some of the locals. And so anybody who's seen the movie or the recent TV series remake of it, I think it's
0: quite fun. Okay, I will just briefly recommend a BBC podcast series called Mayday. It's by a journalist called Chloe Hajimotheo. It's about the white helmets in Syria, a really good uh, multi-part documentary. I wouldn't watch too, or wouldn't listen to too much of it at once as some of it can be pretty heavy going, but it is extremely well weighed and worth your time. And we'll leave it there for now. Reem and Matt, thanks very much. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, we recommend that you hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to us so you never miss an episode. While you're at it, leaving us a rating or review is also greatly appreciated as long as it's a good one if it's a bad one just send us an email uh, the email address for all your feedback is podcast at politico.eu. next week we'll be discussing a super serious issue is the EU funny? we'll let you ponder that one until next week I'm Andrew Gray thanks to our executive producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening